Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have audio from our service on Sunday, November 14th, downtown Covington. This message will complete a series we've been in on the Lord's Prayer, which was actually a mini-series of a larger series we were doing on the subject of prayer for the last couple of months. So today we deal with the line from the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just a reminder, we have devotionals, readings, and reflections posted on our website, northshorevineyard.org, Monday through Friday, and they often tie into the uh, subjects that we've been covering on the weekend. So last week we did a whole series on forgiveness, and this week will be about trials and temptations. So check that out when you get a chance. You can download them right from the website. All right. Thanks for listening. Let's head to the talk. And today we finally come to the last line of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, out of all the lines in the Lord's Prayer, this one, to me, seems the most problematic, or at least, you know, in in a way, it kind of hasn't made the biggest sense. And, And some of you may have no doubt prayed the Lord's Prayer before and you didn't end with uh, this last phrase. You ended with, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, in recent years, Bible scholars and, and folks who study that kind of stuff, they've come across older texts of the gospel, and they found that that wording was not in the end of the Lord's Prayer. So you, you might find even in your Bible it has a little asterisk by it that says, you know, this wasn't in the original. And what they, Bible scholars say is that the reason that thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever is in there, they, they, they suspect it was added by people in the early church because this was such a bummer way to end the prayer, right? Because <laughs> they, they thought it was kind of ending on a down note. You start with God and all his glory, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, and then you end with the devil. So they, uh, they thought it, it might be better to add something on at the end. And so that, that's kind of where the yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever go. And That's certainly true, and that's fine to pray. But we're just going to end it here today. This is what Jesus gave. This is where Jesus ended it, and so I don't have to come up with anything good next week. So um, on that topic. Uh, The first question that I have when I came to this, and this was actually brought up to me by someone a few weeks ago as as we were talking about the Lord's Prayer, and they said, well, you know, why, why do we need to pray for God to not lead us into temptation? I mean, does God lead us into temptation? I mean, why would Jesus put that in the prayer? And I thought, you know, you got a good point. And so here's a couple of things I want to look at this morning. We got tons of scriptures, but uh, first of all, we're going to look at a few scriptures about tempting, and then we'll come back to this. James 1.13 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So that's the Apostle James. And then uh, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide 
a way out so that you can endure it, can endure it. So we have these two scriptures that say that the temptation is not from God, uh, but yet in Jesus' own prayer, it says, lead us not into temptation. So what's up with that? Well, I think this is one of those lines that unfortunately in the translation, Jesus spoke it to his original disciples probably in Aramaic, which was the common version of Hebrew in that day. And then when it was written down, it was written down in Greek, and now it comes to us in English. So this is one of those things where I think the translation of these words has actually not done us a favor on getting the meaning. Um, Probably the better way to understand this would be, and don't let us be led into any temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let us not be led into rather than lead us not into. Oh, I hear music. (laughs) So a better reading would be, let us not be led into rather than lead us not into. And so you may think, "Eh, what does that make? What difference does that make? Well, it, it, it helps you understand that God is not going to lead you into temptation. Think of it this way. My son Ezra, uh, what if we had this jar of cookies on, on the kitchen counter? I said, Ezra, don't have any cookies, and, and he's doing his best to obey me. But when he goes to bed at night, I take a bunch of cookies out, and I start putting them around his room, put some up on the windowsill, put some under his pillow. Would that be nice? Yeah, I'd be like, you'd be heartless, you know? And, and, and then telling Ezra, don't, don't eat any of this, but I'm going to put them all over your life. So, uh, and... and we can kind of take that idea with God that saying, lead us not into temptation. It's, it's a tongue twister to say. Uh, lead us not into temptation, that that is, you know, like if we, we can get superstitious and be praying that, like, if we don't pray that, God's going to throw stuff out there that's going to get us off track. Well, the picture that, that really emerges from the scripture is that it's, it's more like walking through a minefield, and we're... we're we're saying that we're going to go through some times where there's going to be temptations all around us, but we're asking God, help me not hit any of these minds that will take me down, but deliver me from evil. So we pray that we may never come into and under the power of any temptations. And in short, the grammatical translation of this would be actually not lead us not into, but lead us over temptation. So we're, we're not praying, you know, in a superstitious way. We're just saying, God, keep me from things that are going to just derail my life. And the word deliver here that, that's translated deliver in, in, into English is a word that means to snatch away from something. So it's kind of a violent sim- sin. I'm just having trouble talking this way. <laughs> Synonym. Uh, which, which actually has to do with grabbing someone and, and, and pulling them away very quickly. So what we're really praying when we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is, dear Father, please lead us in such a way that we will be able to resist the temptations that surround us. Please swoop down and rescue us from all the wiles of the evil one and from the power of all his evil people and works. We need your help. So in this prayer, it's, it's one of these, you know, we're not praying, bring on the temptation. You know, I'm a spiritual Rambo. I'm, gonna, I'm ready to storm the gates of hell. We're, we're understanding, we're, we're approaching God with some humility, kind of like last week. You know, if, if you didn't have the forgive us 
our, our debts and lead us not into temptation, into temptation. Uh, you could easily get very cocky praying these, these prayers up there. You know, Father, you bring your kingdom and, you know, we're just going to go. But this keeps humility in our prayer because we're realizing that we forgive as we are being forgiven. We realize that apart from God's grace, temptation is going to take us down. I mean, apart. And so, so we're coming to God from that standpoint. And so we're asking, God, help me. Now, I can end the, the, the discussion there. That, that's pretty much the, the, the teaching on that phrase. But I'm a preacher, so I'm going to keep talking. Um, <laughs> I, I want to, today, I want to, you know, with this in mind, we'll come back to this in a minute, but I want to look at temptation, trials, testing in the life of the believer. And I, and I think specifically looking at the example of the Apostle Peter. Now, I'm a big fan of Peter. Peter, why am I having trouble? That's right, yeah. They don't, they don't. Uh, I'm a big fan of Peter. The Apostle Peter is, is probably one of the guys I can relate to in the Bible more than anybody because he kind of has this brash, impulsive side. He's quick to speak. <laughs> he's, he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. But at the end, we see that God takes all that mess that Peter is, and he works out his will in Peter's life. So I want to start by talking about a little story here. Uh, Matthew 16, 13 through 23, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? What are the rumors flying around about who I am? the disciples said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say uh, you're Elijah. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, bingo, you win. That's the right answer, Peter. And he says, you know what, Peter? You didn't think of that yourself. You didn't come up with that in your own mind, your own intellectual ability. The, The Spirit of God revealed that to you. God showed that to you. He said, blessed are you. And he goes on to to tell Peter, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter, a word that means rock. And he says, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Peter in this moment gets a revelation from God and Jesus says, you're blessed. And that's the kind of stuff I'm building my church on. People who have this kind of revelation. And so knowing Peter, from what I see of Peter in Scripture, this is probably where Peter gets a swelled head, probably looks around at the other guys and says, I got the right answer. Jesus just called me a rock. said he's going to build his church out of me. But a few verses later, we see that Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, little, little word of wisdom. Don't rebuke Jesus. Um, Never, Lord, he said, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
So we see Peter, one moment, he's getting commended by God and, and called Rocky. You know, you're, you're the stuff I'm building the church out of. A few verses later, we see that Jesus is calling him Satan. He's not even calling him like a fool or a child. You know, he, he's like, dude, you're straight up evil. You're opposing the purposes of God. Well, this little picture is a picture of Peter's life. It's a roller coaster. Man, sometimes he's, he's walking on water. He's there for the transfiguration. He's getting the right answers, but other times he's failing miserable. And what we see with Peter is this battle between what God wants to do in him and his ego. <laughs> we see that, that Peter has these ideas of himself that aren't based on reality. You know, you could see a, if you saw an iceberg out in the ocean... This little piece that you see sticking above the water, that, that's only about 10% of that iceberg. 90% is underneath the surface. And we all have this kind of stuff in our lives. There's the part of our lives that people can see, that I, they, they can identify, but then there's all this stuff beneath the surface. And Peter had no clue of any of that stuff beneath the surface. He didn't know what, what existed there. He thought he was just this little bit that people could see. And he was always trying to live from that place. What God wanted to do was get below the surface and do something in his life. So let's trace the story of Peter out a little bit further. Luke 22, 24 through 33. This is the, the Passover right before Jesus goes to the, to, the res, uh, to, to the crucifixion. He celebrates Passover with his disciples one night. And I love this. Talk about egos again. A dispute arose among the disciples as to which one of them was considered the greatest. Now, you know Peter was all up in that. <laughs> Peter, was, Peter was saying, uh, any of you guys walk on water? Didn't think so. Any of you guys called rock by Jesus? Mm, I didn't think so. I think I'm the greatest, you know, and they're, they're sitting there just, and it's kind of silly when you think about it. Jesus sees what he's facing. He sees the cross looming in the not-so-distant future. I mean, within, by the next day, he's going to be paraded before a sham trial and separated from the Father. And he, the, the whole point he's been coming to. And so here he's celebrating Passover dinner with his disciples. And instead of gathering around Jesus and comforting him and, and you know, spending some final time together, they're arguing about who's the greatest and Jesus says to them, he says, The kings of the Gentile lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. I love this. Jesus is saying, Hello. You guys are arguing about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest in this room? Who's the greatest in this room? And what have I been doing? I've been waiting on you. I washed your feet. I've been serving you food. I've, I've spending time with you. I got other things I could be doing. Who's the greatest? But what am I doing? I'm demonstrating my greatness not by lording it over you, not by gloating in my power, but by serving you. And, and Jesus is showing the disciples something about the kingdom. It's not power over. It's not ego-driven. 
power under. And in this context, he goes on to, to give Peter a, a prophetic word which none of us wants to get. <laughs> he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, will strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. <laughs> How'd you like to get that word from Jesus? <laughs> Satan came to me, and he wants to sift you like wheat. Well, you told him no, right? You told him he couldn't do that, right? <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm praying for you, Peter. <laughs> I'm praying that you, you won't lose heart. that that this won't take you down, that this won't define you, that you won't be defined by the mark of evil against you, but you will actually come through this with something that you can give to other people. Again, Peter is living in this this 10% of the iceberg on top. Jesus says, you're going to be sifted tonight. You're going to run away. You're going to do the wrong thing when it counts. When I need you the most, you're going to fail me. And Peter says, not me. Look at me. I'm the one you call rock. And Jesus has to tell Peter what's really going on beneath the surface. <laughs> Peter, beneath all your posturing, beneath your, your big words, beneath, beneath all this ego stuff, the real you, is going to fail. But I still love you, and I'm praying for you, and I'm praying that, that, this, that, that you will encounter what God in the midst of this. So we know the story from there. Peter goes on, denies Jesus three times, uh, and, and weeps. It says, the scriptures say that he, he ran away weeping bitterly. He's just probably suicidal at this point. But a, a few days later, after the resurrection, Jesus finds the disciples, and they're out there fishing again. And uh, no, no doubt kind of dejected, and, and Peter's probably having a hard time coming around Jesus because of what he did. You know, he just feels like a failure. All of a sudden, after a, a night of catching no fish, they smell fish and biscuits, and they look over at the shore, and it's Jesus, and he's cooking them breakfast. And they come over there, and, and this is the famous scene where Jesus restores Peter back into ministry. And I love what he says in John chapter 21. 15, verse 15, he says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I love this, this questioning of Jesus because I think it finally, when, when he finally gets to that final answer of Peter, what does Peter say? <laughs> like, I love you, but, but you really know all things. See, there's other times in Peter's life where Peter said, I love you, I'll follow you. I'll, all these other knuckleheads are going to abandon you when it counts, but, but I'll be there to the end, Jesus. What we found is that beneath the surface, you know, when you strip the, all the talking and the posturing away, 
Peter didn't have what it takes. And so finally, Peter, when he's being asked by Jesus, when he's being restored, do you love me? He finally says, you know, when it comes down to it, I don't even know if I love you. I think I love you. I think I love you in my head. I think I want to do the right thing, but you, won't, you know all things. And I think that's precisely the point where God's like, now, now we can work with you, Peter. Now, now we're getting somewhere. Now we can turn you into a rock. There's a great book I would recommend, a pretty easy read, although it's kind of a, not, not a fun book necessarily, uh, Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. And he writes in this book, he said, many men pray for the power of God more every year. Those prayers sound powerful, sincere, godly, and without ulterior motive. But hidden under such prayer and fervor, however, are ambition, a craving for fame, a desire to be considered a spiritual giant. The man who prays such a prayer may not even know it, but such dark motives and desires are in his heart, in your heart. Even as men pray these prayers, they are hollow inside. There is little internal spiritual growth. Prayer for power is the quick and short way, circumnavigating spiritual growth. There is a vast difference between the outward clothing of the Spirit's power and the inward feeling of the Spirit's life. In the first, despite the power, the hidden man of the heart may remain unchanged. In the latter, that monster is dealt with. What does the world need? Gifted men outwardly empowered or broken men inwardly transformed? I love that quote because that's a picture of David, I mean, of of Peter. He was actually talking about David in this, but uh, it's a picture of Peter. Peter had ambition. He had drive. He had determination. He's the type of person you'd look at and you'd say, this guy's a leader. He's always out there at the front. But beneath all that, God was concerned about that place. God used the trials, the temptations to bring a breaking in Peter's life. And we see the Peter of later years is someone who actually was a rock. How do we know that? Because we can see this in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. This is words that Peter actually wrote several years after all this stuff had happened. Verse 6, he says, In all this... You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I love that. But what I love about those quotes is you see them in the context of Peter's life. Peter wasn't talking that way 10 years before. He was talking, oh, I'll do anything for you. I'll go to hell and back. I don't care if they torture me or kill me. Later on in his life, he's saying, man, if you're going through it, what's the, what's the country songs say? If you're going through hell, keep on going. <laughs> that those trials, those testings, those temptations, walking through that place, God's going to do something in you that's of, worth more than gold. I remember my first several years, I was a campus pastor out here at SLU over in Hammond, somewhere out there, uh, and I, I was like Peter. I was 
quick to spout off and give my opinion on everything. I love getting in arguments with professors and with other students about evolution or abstinence. I mean, you name it. I would, I'd be out there in people's faces. And, and I just love that stuff. I loved it when people got mad at me. You know, I could walk away suffering for Jesus. Hallelujah. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I, was, I was a bit of a jerk. I was not in touch with the 90% below the surface. I was living this, this driven, ambitious, spiritual life based on the opinions of other people, my ego, and, and all that stuff. And God devised a, a plan to deal with that. It was called marriage. And uh, I, I've shared this before, but you know, I know a lot of people who, man, their first year of marriage is, is awesome. I, mine wasn't. Which is which is good, I guess. You know, we, we were talking about that the other day. You know, that, hey, we got a lot of the real bad stuff out of the way. Hopefully, in the first few years, but it, it was it was very hard. I mean, within a couple of months, I was like, there is no chance in hell that this marriage is going to work. I mean, it just can't. I mean, we were fighting all the time, and and what was worse was I was a campus pastor, so I I felt like I had to look like I had it all going together. So, I mean, we're just, I'd come home and, you know, just this is all this junk. And then I'd be around the students that I was pastoring, and I had to act like, you know, I'm, I'm Mr. Got It All Together, praise God, quoting scriptures and stuff like that. But boy, it was just, it was miserable. And I remember talking to pastor friends of mine and other Christians, like, oh, well, you just need to read the Bible more. You just need to believe more. You just need to pray more, fast, bind it up, loose it, whatever, you know. <laughs> read some James Dobson or some Gary Smalley or whatever. And, and, man, I was trying everything I could figure out, and I was just losing. So finally, one night, I called this guy up who was a pastor in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, a guy named Dan Hall, and he made the mistake of giving me his card one time and said, look, you know, I, I perceive that you and Dean are, are having some, uh, a, a struggle here, so if you want to call me up sometime, call me up. I called him up one night when we were in a fight. We were just like, ugh. I said, damn, man, you got to help me. I'm, I just don't know what to do here. I just can't see this marriage working out. And Dan, the, the words of wisdom that he gave me that night gave me absolutely no hope that anything was ever going to get better. <laughs> you know what he tells me? He says, consider yourself blessed that God has chosen you to go through this time of suffering. <laughs> like, what? That's like Jesus' word to Peter. Satan came to sift you, but uh, I'm praying for you, brother. <laughs> he proceeded to tell me, he said, you know, throughout the Bible, every person that you see used by God in a mighty way, he said they had at least 15 years of breaking in their life before they ever did the things that they ended up being known for. And he said, you can trace that right through the history of the church. Men and women of God who've been used in a, in, a, in a major way, they were never in a place where they could be used until God dealt with things. And it took you know, a lot of breaking. He said, you know, your job here is not to fix your marriage or fix your wife. He said, your job is to show up to school each morning and say, God, what do you want to show me? What do you want to do in my heart? And when he told me that, it was crazy. There was no hope that anything was going to get better. No hope. And these other pastors who told me to read the Bible or Gary Smalley or, you know, at least they, they, they gave me some illusion of hope. Like, if you just do this, work this formula, things will get better. 
But you know, for the first time, I actually did begin to have hope. Because I could see that, that even the temptations and the trials and the suffering, that God was still in that. That's good to know, huh? Sometimes we, we get to thinking when we're going through hard times that God's not in it, that we've, we've offended Him or something. No, God's right there. Actually, God's doing something in us in the midst of that. He's doing what Peter talks about. He's bringing, he's proving the genuineness of our faith so that we'll have something that's worth more than gold. The truth is, my marriage didn't get better after a couple of months, or a year, or two. I mean, it actually, I think it took us about five years before we even like hanging around each other. <laughs> but it was at that point, I think, that, that our wills were broken enough, you know, that, that, that we could genuinely love each other. See, I had actually, by being in ministry all those years, I had led myself into believing that I was a very loving person, and that I was very patient, and that God loves people, and, and I'm just all about what God wants to do. And then God puts me in a, a situation where I have to love somebody every day, and I didn't have it. A lot of what I thought I had was just on the surface. It was just this thing that people could see. It was just something to hide behind, just like with Peter. God started using the trials and the, and the suffering to change me. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we're saying, God, don't let evil have the final word in my life. Because the reality is, we are all going to confront evil. You know, if we look at Jesus, Jesus is actually, everything he tells us in this prayer, he did. <laughs> Jesus faced temptation. He faced evil head on. And as Christ followers, I, I would love to just believe a theology that, hey, you, you just do a few things, you work a formula, and you're gonna, everything's going to be easy. I love that. I would love that option. But back to that quote, what does the world need? Gifted men outwardly empowered or broken men in, inwardly transformed? And our world desperately needs people who've encountered God in the midst of trials and suffering and temptation and have been changed. I can honestly say those first five years of marriage, the hardest time I've ever been through in my life. But I wouldn't trade what God did in me in those times for anything in the world. Now, I figure... I was about 13 years ago, and Dan Hall said, you know, a minimum of 15 years, so maybe I only got two more years of break. No. <laughs> Actually, some of us probably need 20 or 25, 30 years of breaking before uh, God can use us. It took 40 for Moses. 40 for Moses, yeah. I don't want, I don't want the Moses plan. <laughs> but when we pray this prayer, we are coming to God in a spirit of humility saying, God... I got nothing in my life. Reality is, I may think that I can rush hell with a, a water pistol and I, I can be a spirit, but, but God, ultimately, you know. And some of the things I think that are true about myself, they're not that true. So God, I'm just asking that you would deliver me, that whatever I go through, that in the end, I wouldn't be defined by the evil that, that I face, but I would be defined by the goodness of God and what you've done in my heart through it. And that's the heart of what we're praying.
Why don't you guys stand?